the idea is to have a launch system that can basically launch in the end, you know, we want to launch at least once a day. That's really not feasible with really large launch vehicles. Right. Not yet. It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project, and we're moving into season two. This is the first episode of season two, which is going to be entirely about space, small sats, launch vehicles, and that. And I'm excited to have Matthew, Matt Travis. He's the president of Vogue Aerospace and the co-founder of another company called Phoenix Launch Systems. And the whole theme of our talk today is going to be about achieving this rapid, simplified access to space. So thanks for being on, Matt. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun talk. You've got a lot of experience and technical know-how on that. And, uh, and let's dig right into it. Uh, th this, this idea of uh, make space boring, which is kind of the, the theme that I run on, right? Which is like, let's, let's make it so that it's not scary to investors, that the public understands it, that people are using space more and more. They're going to jobs that deal with space, right? And just comfortable with it. And that Phoenix Launch Systems is... is it just fits right into that mindset from my point of view, right? It's your slogan is enabling simplified rapid access to space. So tell us a little bit about what your goal is for this and how you plan to take advantage of it. Sure. The goal is on a technical, in a technical sense, the, mm -hmm. the goal is to uh, bring to market a complete end to end turnkey uh, solution for nanosatellite launch dedicated nanosatellites mm -hmm. so no you know no ride share or the like and the motivation behind that is first the need of the community you know it can take less than a year to go from concept to flight hardware with cubesats mm -hmm. it, it can so, but sometimes it takes a lot longer of course uh, but even so it still takes three to five or even more years for that CubeSat to fly. The, the, the manifesting is still dependent upon manifesting large satellite missions mm -hmm. because most CubeSats are actually currently, all CubeSats essentially are rideshare. Right. So SpaceX uh, tries to address that with dedicated Falcon launches of small satellites there are companies such as rocket lab and firefly that uh do the same uh firefly is i'm impressed to see they're they're going into their first stage integrated testing on the test stand that's pretty pretty great to see but in their business models which, which are good business models don't get me wrong uh, but for dedicated a dedicated nano satellite launch the the customer is still in a position where their spacecraft has to fly with 10, 20, 30, or, or 100 other CubeSats. So essentially, they're still flying under a lot of the restrictions that the rideshare community faces. So we see a need for, to, to start with, a dedicated nanosatellite launch system that only launches maybe five to eight small satellites at a time. That offers the, the customer the, you know, much greater flexibility in their mission design, uh, in the orbit selection, in mm -hmm. scheduling, 
you know, the things, the aspects that they don't have now. And then those factors really drive up their costs. You know, it can, it may cost, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to, you know, fully build a cube set, but all of these other issues, getting it to orbit, mm -hmm. you, the customers ends up paying two, three, or, you know, 10 times more depending on the mission. So that that's sort of the need we're addressing. And the rapid access comes into play. Uh, we got sort of enticed by the Department of Defense's uh, focus on that right now. I'm sure you've heard of the DARPA launch challenge, which at a previous company, we were one of the competitors in that as well. And the idea is to have a launch system that can basically launch in the end, you know, we want to launch at least once a day uh, from multiple locations. Hmm. And that's really not feasible with really large launch vehicles. Right. Not yet. Any infrastructure at, at the launch site, except, except, you know, maybe power hookups and, and water. Um, and DOD really like, like this concept as well. Uh, there are other companies uh, doing similar. So that was, that sort of drove all of our design decisions since then. That's where we feel reusability is, is key. Mm -hmm. uh, NASA, NASA calls it gas and go. Mm -hmm. One of their long-term objectives is to have launch systems that, you know, they launch, deploy the payload, come back to earth, fill up with fuel, get a new payload, and go again. Uh, that's, that's sort of one of the holy grails that, that you know, NASA, DOD, and the commercial sector are all looking for. And that's what we're, we're trying to, to build out. Right. And so we shrink the payload size that we're going to carry, and that shrinks the launch vehicle size. And then it like halves the cost of the launch or more, right? You're down to, what, 750000 that's our that's goal, seven seven fifty. Uh, if we fly uh, without reuse of the vehicle, which we may do that initially, uh, it's really difficult to have everything in, you know, in place from the first launch uh, to implement reusability, because mm -hmm. uh, there's a there's a lot to learn with the vehicle itself in, in flight. Um, without reusability, we'd probably be uh, around probably a million, maybe 1.2. To get down to 750, we would need the reusability. And I'll, I'll note one interesting technical thing. Mm -hmm. um, a while back, Peter Beck, you know, he announced that Rocket Lab is gonna recover their first stage. Mm -hmm. And he, he mentioned that previously his philosophy was not that reusability isn't possible, but if you take a small launch vehicle and make it reusable, you have a medium-sized launch vehicle. Hmm. And Rocket Lab is not a medium-sized launch vehicle company. Well, for us, it's the same way. We may have to, you know, grow the vehicle a bit. Uh, if you add landing legs or parachutes, uh, installation on the, on the uh, thermal protection on the outside of the vehicle, you do increase its mass which increase your propellant requirements. 
So the vehicle may end up scaling up a little bit, but since we're starting with a very small launch vehicle, mm -hmm. even if it grows a bit to be reusable, it's still going to be a very small launch vehicle. So that's how we address that concern and not have this endlessly upsized launch vehicle. Right. And so for anybody who's non-technical, who's just a regular business person or member of the public who happens to be listening to or watching this, right now, if you're in, in the academic field or in the, the small sat manufacturing field, you have to wait. You pretty much have to wait uh, until you get on one of these shared launches. And so the business yeah. case for this makes a lot of sense to me. So if you can imagine uh, being in a city with pretty poor bus service, right? <laughs> you know, if you miss that bus, you got to wait. And, uh, and there are mm -hmm. graduate students and folks in, in academia who can't really wait. Or if they try and compress their schedule, they usually eliminate a lot of testing. And this results in, in uh, typically a horrible 40 plus percent failure rate, uh, partial or, or full missions failure rate of small sats. So it's, I think right. it's going to be very good to have a repeat uh, fast bus service, basically where another bus is coming by in six minutes, no problem, right? We've got another launch going up. Uh, and I know from my own um, production management, operations management history, smaller batch sizes increase speed of everything. So by zipping eight of them up there, instead of having to wait for 100 or 50 or whatever at a time, I think you're gonna get a lot of speed. Tell us a little bit more, Matt, about the numbers, um, because you're planning to increase capacity here of launches, right? How do you expect the marketplace to fill that capacity? Where do you, is there a mix between academic and commercial that you see coming? Yeah, there's definitely a mix. I, I, I believe, and, and the trends show it, that the, the commercial, the the share of the market occupied by commercial small sets and nano satellites is increasing the mm -hmm. the percent that is academic it's it's not growing the way the commercial sector is uh i think that's i, I believe that's due to one the academic world um doesn't see as much of a need for these for their cubesat project so there aren't as many but also the academic world they were the first ones to adopt mm. you know cubesats the mm -hmm. cubesats were invented in the academic world so they've had their market size pretty growing but but steadily slowly growing over the years it's really the commercial sector now and the government sector who in the last you know few years seem to have discovered the 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 miracle that small satellites can can be so that's where the growth really is in the coming years especially with uh you know small sat constellations uh and small sat missions beyond low earth orbit right mm -hmm. now just about every you know just about every small sat operates you know at roughly you know 400 500 kilometers iss orbit for example uh but there are applications beyond that mm -hmm. uh, one of the challenges is that there aren't the opportunities to implement those missions mm. uh, for example uh nasa has issued a, 
an RFP for the CubeSat launch initiative that they do every year or so to fly CubeSats on the Artemis II mission uh, in, you know, 2020, whatever, <laughs> whenever it flies. Um, and actually, we do have a proposal in work for a CubeSat mission to fly on, on the Artemis II mission. But, you know, th that's just if, if, if an organization, for example, ours, that would be Aries Institute, uh, has a CubeSat project that they want to put into lunar orbit or impact the moon or whatever, well, where are the launch opportunities? Mm -hmm. Right now, the only launch opportunity in the foreseeable future is Artemis II. There may be some opportunities with India or China, but who knows? And well, we can't fly our satellites on Chinese launch vehicles anyway. So there are mission concepts that, that don't require low Earth orbit, but they do require unique you know, mission profiles, but there's really not the opportunity to get there yet. And that's where a, a very low cost, uh, dedicated launch system mm -hmm. uh, comes into play. Okay. I saw this phrase in your business uh, case document, scalable con ops. I haven't seen many people using that term. Is that, <laughs> is that you or is somebody else who came up with that? Uh, no, that was us. That okay. was us. Um, I see that in the intelligence community all the time. <laughs> it was fun to see it. Actually, actually, I, think, I think that actually got put in when we were doing our presentation for DARPA. Hmm. Okay. I think we called it that. I think I, <laughs> so, and I, it wasn't a conscious decision. It just yeah. sort of, you know, came fit, about. Fit the they, mold for the yeah, mold. they're always talking about their concepts of operations and everything. Right. So. Okay. Well, how about, I guess we'll, we'll finish up this area of, of the discussion. Of, if you could share maybe what are the components of what you believe a successful scalable launch system are? The components. Um, I could say a launch vehicle, but that's pretty obvious. <laughs> what What's really needed is simplicity. Okay. So simplicity and, and autonomy. Uh, I'll give an example with, with our launch vehicle. Uh, the, the avionics, uh, the flight termination system, and the launch processing system are all being designed to be completely autonomous. So our, our objective is a launched crew of four people, hmm. which is unheard of. I mean, you know, even, even the other small launch companies still require, you know, 24, 40 people. Uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's our objective. And simplified operations with our particular propellant uh, that we use. We don't require an igniter. It's not cryogenic. It's not toxic. So literally one person can fuel the vehicle with standard commercial grade equipment. And that's another aspect is none of our hardware requires quote aerospace grade tooling. Hmm. Uh, okay. Everything can be produced essentially with like automotive, you know, tooling. Um, 
and that that derives from our our focus on simplicity okay the operations guy in me is excited to hear that <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot of companies you know over over time tech companies especially and remember the dot-com boom mm -hmm. um, they like to brag about how much they've grown we don't ever want to be, be in a position where we have to brag about how many more people we've hired we do want to have a lot of people but we don't want to have you know 3,000 people launching four rockets a year mm -hmm. uh, if I'd love to have 3,000 people launching you know a thousand rockets a year um, and that that's that's hard to get across with uh, investors, government agencies, you know, the first, one of the first questions I, I get asked when I talk to uh, a commercial spaceport operator or a technology park that's in development is how many jobs are you bringing? Hmm. Uh, because that's our focus as it, right. as it should be. And, you know, I have to be honest, mm -hmm. we don't want to bring that many jobs because that adds to cost and co adding to cost adds to price and that's not good for our customer. Right. Right. So I think the most important thing is simplicity. Uh, second to that is, is autonomous systems. Uh, you know, essentially keep, keep the operations as lean as they need, as lean as they can be, but as expansive as they need to be. So do everything you need to do, but don't don't add layers to it simply because you have another ten million dollars of funding, and you you know, and so hey, ten million dollars, let's buy a new building. You know, it doesn't make sense. Okay, well, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> I like it a lot. I hope that the uh, the spaceport operators in that can um, can get their heads around it. You know, uh, actually, there there are exist for a long there, time, I think is more important, right? There, there are a few spaceport operators who, who have uh, embraced the concept. Mm -hmm. um, I have in the past spoken with uh, the spaceport Camden uh, folks. Mm -hmm. Haven't talked with them in about a year now. Uh, they're still getting their spaceport license stuff all, all squared away, but they're, they're moving forward. Um, and believe it or not, I just signed a letter of intent, a letter of support with a European consortium that is bidding to build a new spaceport in the Azores. Okay. Huh. Um, it's been in work for several years and they're finally moving forward and they, they love the idea of mm -hmm. this you know, the small operation, right. small footprint, mm -hmm. because, you know, There's where they're located, <laughs> yeah. not a lot, of, and a lot of the land and, and the ocean is environmentally sensitive. Mm -hmm. Since both with our technology and our small footprint, we're very, um, I don't want to say, mm -hmm. it's hard to say, when, as soon as you say you're very friendly to the environment, people are like, but you're doing this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. We are we are as benign with the environment uh, as we believe is possible. Okay. For example, if we have a propellant spill, mm -hmm. the cleanup procedure is to hose it down. Right. Dilute it with water and it's fine. Right. Yeah, you're not using kerosene. Um, 
I heard you mention the Aries Institute a few minutes ago. What is the purpose of the Institute and your role there? How does that fit in? Basically, its purpose is to promote STEM education okay. using space, aerospace-oriented uh, projects as the vehicle, hands-on hardware uh, projects that, that not just schools, but, but even the public can be involved in. Uh, it's been around since 2003. It also does a lot of media work. Um, th that's part of outreach. Uh, getting the public interested in space. Um, we, there are several uh, of the more popular launch photographers out there who did get their start with us. Uh, basically, other reputable news outlets told them no, and they came to me and was like, if you can do good work, go right ahead. I'll get you credentialed. And, and uh, they, they, they have done really great work. So that's, that's very important, uh, you know, with the public outreach and public support of space flight, space exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, we currently we have this project, uh, a CubeSat project called Calypso, mm -hmm. which that's named after Jacques Cousteau's ex exploration ship. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, we did a Kickstarter uh, several years ago, and we wanted to have an experimental uh, solar sail project. Okay. Huh. Well, shortly thereafter, Light Sail raised a whole bunch of money uh, with the Planetary Society, and and they moved forward. So, the the impetus for us to experiment with a solar sail sort of lessened because of Planetary Society's awesome work. So the CubeSat went into storage and now we've revived it with this new project um, basically testing to test a new uh, higher thrust uh, CubeSat propulsion system hmm. and so we'll be that's part of the proposal we're trying to finish up and get in for the Artemis 2 mission okay um, is that is that electric or something else it's going to be chemical chemical Okay. Yeah, it's going to be the a similar propellant to the launch vehicle. Hmm. Um, you can think of it sort of not as a thruster, like an ion mm -hmm. system, electric system, uh, but almost like a you know kick stage for the CubeSat. Um, the way the, the theoretical mission that we have in mind is. A CubeSat would get dropped off in, you know, geostationary transfer orbit on some commercial mission. Uh, it would engage this propulsion system, which would be uh, a thrust range between 10 and 100 newtons. Uh, and for a CubeSat, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that would get it on a high energy trajectory. Uh, potentially an escape trajectory, we have to work out the numbers. But that would do its job. And then the, and then if the CubeSat has like electric thrusters or, or whatever for ongoing operations, it, it could use those. But basically, it, it basically would be a, a high, high thrust propulsion system to get a CubeSat out of 
essentially out of Earth orbit, whether mm. to the moon or, or elsewhere. Okay, and that's pretty neat, getting out of the well, gravity well by itself. Well, one of, the, one of the problems with electric thrusters is, yeah, you can go from GTO to Mars on an electric thruster, theoretically. It's going to take a long time, and your CubeSat's probably not going to survive. Mm. Um, because they don't have, you know, as long a lifetime. So the, for deep space missions, a high thrust propulsion system is really, really needed. Hmm. Okay. So a few different areas you folks are working on. Uh, before you were in these roles, you were part of something called Aphelion Orbitals, which was all about CubeSat components. And we dig into that for a couple of minutes. I'm curious what you learned about third-party component specifications, what they said on paper versus reality, if there was any <laughs> discrepancy there. Um, well, put it this way. We, we purchased a batch of high-pressure valves, high-quality valves, uh, and the specifications that they had listed matched uh, they actually exceeded the specifications we required because mm -hmm. you always have your you know 0.5 margins and everything else and so we pressurized the system then all the all the valves blew <laughs> they weren't exactly high pressure yeah. um and that took the entire system offline and cost us several days of a workaround and in the end the workaround was to bypass the valves which was not acceptable right. why, why are we doing this at all <laughs> it, it yeah. was not acceptable for flight hardware but for the test we were doing um it, it was it, it was okay to do that these were these were valves that would actuate once mm -hmm. at the beginning um and then actuate again at the end of the test Unless we depleted all of our consumables, then the valves, it wouldn't matter. So we converted the test into one where we just depleted all the consumables. Um, not ideal, but yeah. Third, third, party, third party manufacturing is also interesting. Uh, we had a couple components uh, that we sent out for manufacture. Uh, because at the time, our tooling, we didn't feel, we have more confidence in a company that's been doing it for decades mm -hmm. than, than us doing it ourselves at the time. Um, we probably should have done it ourselves anyway, because the components came back. And I took one component, the other component, which is mm -hmm. supposed to slide into it, mm -hmm. and clink. Bounce Wait. right off, yeah. Yep. So, <laughs> fortunately, we had, we were working with a with a contractor, um, a machine shop mm -hmm. uh, down the road on some other hardware, and we took it to them and said, "Can you please, you know, that to mill stuff out, out a little more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. to mill it out like uh, one tenth of a millimeter or something like that." But they did, and and everything was fine. But that there was a cost. That. Right, and a time delay, and yeah, and a time delay. Yeah, so sourcing components is a challenge, and and we know this in the small sap field. So, so this company made it assembled components to sell to small sap manufacturers, and uh, and they bought through a magneto-driven website. Is that right? Right. Okay, and 
I'm curious what traffic or distribution channels did you use to get that website in front of those customers? How did they know that you existed? Okay. Um, first we, we, you know, attended, uh, events like space mm -hmm. tech expo and, mm -hmm. you know, industry, uh, conventions and conferences, mm -hmm. which is always important. Uh, we also reached out to uh, cubesatshop.com, mm -hmm. satsearch.co, uh, Precious Payload, and um, a few others. But we essentially got our, our products, you know, listed on, on their, on their mm -hmm. sites. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we had these different channels right. that we worked with. Right. Smart. Uh, that's uh, being a marketing guy also. I'm interested in, in how all these things work. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, one of the best ways to sell CubeSats in the academic world hmm. is, uh, is what, what we did, um, is actually reach out to different institutions. Um, you know, you, you look at at different universities mm -hmm. uh, in the United States and around the world, and their aerospace engineering departments and, and whatnot. And you'll see that they have, you know, ongoing research that they're doing. You just reach out to them and talk to them. Right. Um, and, and you can be very effective at making sales that way as well. Hmm. All right. Well, I know personally, I've been connecting with a lot of folks in academia. Um, over the last few months and it's they've been fun people to get to to meet <laughs> as well uh, the first place I started was I found a NASA report with all the failures of small oh, sats on them <laughs> and, I, like, uh, and they listed like here's the the university and the department that came up with it so I just went after they them could, <laughs> they, they could have saved a lot of paper and ink by printing the CubeSat projects that actually succeeded mm -hmm. <laughs> right Right. Well, let's finish up then with, with a look at Vogue Aerospace, which is, the, the, you know, one of your current projects. Uh, it, sure. It's about a versatile space transportation system that I think is going to change space quite a bit, it, you know, as it, as it comes into existence and that. Tell us a little bit about that, um, what the vision is and, and where you're going with it. Okay, this, this one, um, our CEO, uh, Michael Ressa, reached mm -hmm. out to me last December, and this was as I was exiting Athelion Orbitals, mm -hmm. and uh, he recruited me onto the team, and the concept is, it's multi, I won't say multi-use, but it has both uh, military and civilian applications. Mm -hmm. Uh, for for implementation in both uh, uh, standoff weapon systems as well as uh, compact small launch vehicle, mm -hmm. which is my main interest, of course. Uh, and he uses some. Here's where I got to be careful that I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it does use some. <laughs> yeah, it does use some yeah. some technologies that uh, are known but have not been actually implemented in a system like this before. And it, it'll be another uh, ultra small launch vehicle. Uh, we're, we're looking at, at potential reuse in the future. 
but the it's going to be again simplicity is key and it will be able to be fielded uh within one day so you can get a satellite and launch it within one day uh you know and that's that feeds into the defense applications where you know weapon systems need to be need to be fielded and 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 fired on very short notice right and there's a pretty big concern about small sat security right now the cyber security and yes. somebody just said maybe we should nationalize this stuff and i was like eh, uh, well, probably not but uh interesting ask, idea yeah ask china about that so one. you know and, and these things are cheap in that so if you knock them out of the sky it would be nice to be able to get the replacements up there really quickly so i like what's going on here and i think that's one of the big uh market opportunities in the future and you don't, I don't see it in many of the industry studies and reports is replacing all these small satellites, mm -hmm. especially the ones in the low earth orbit. Right. Uh, you know, if there may be a constellation of 2000 of these small satellites, you're probably going to need to replace 10% a year at least, mm -hmm. even high reliability. So that right there is another 200 launches. Mm -hmm. per year and the initial constellation may take 2000 cubesats but then you're going to be replacing 200 a year every year year after year right and that's a tremendous market opportunity right and this thing we, is not going to go away no <laughs> not a once and done thing <laughs> <laughs> no and so at at vogue as well as phoenix we we do see that as an area where we can bring uh bring bring a bring our strengths into play and and address that very well which other launch systems current launch systems uh really aren't able to they if you have a, if you have a small satellite that drops out of orbit and you need it replaced very fast i think even with some of these other companies the quickest that they would be able to do would probably be a month you know and and if you have a, a communication system or an observation system um that's not really acceptable and you know one the traditionally the way to handle that would be you launch spares mm -hmm. that's been historically what's been done there always have spare communication satellites on orbit and, and such um but in low to, to medium earth orbit those spares are going to drop out of orbit too they can fail as well <laughs> yeah. yeah so there's still going to be a, a very large replacement need right well i like it you guys have got everything covered you've got the launch vehicles and the speed and and uh, also an understanding of the guts that go into these things you know so i, I really like that so simplified rapid access to space so Matt, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, if they like what they've heard and want to learn more, what's the best way to find you? Which one of my eight email addresses? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the best way would probably be, you can reach me at matthew.travis at phoenixlaunchsystems.com. And 
I will, we have my address already, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I could put it in the, uh, the description. Sure. Sure. And that's Matthew with two T's. I've, right. Over the years I've had, I had a credit card where they put one T on my name and it took forever to get that cleared up. Well, there you go. But no, it, I, I'm happy. I'm happy to answer anybody's questions, inquiries. Awesome. My guest today has been Matthew Travis. He's doing a lot. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's the president of Vogue Aerospace and Defense and a co-founder of Phoenix Launch Systems and a director at the Aries Institute. Busy guy. Hope to have you back on sometime soon. And uh, anytime. I hope I hope you've enjoyed being our guest today. I promise I'll have plenty of to talk about over the years to come. <laughs> Thanks.